That was the opening music to Planet of the Apes. And this movie was released in 1968. April 3rd, almost uh, to the date. April 3rd, 1968. And was it released by 20th Century Fox, I think, right? It was. They, they distributed and it was produced by a company called Appjack, which is Arthur P. Jacobs Productions. My name is Matt Johnson and I'm recording from the Seattle area today. And I'm Bob Johnson in Los Angeles where our weather is Seattle-like, cloudy, 55, 60 degrees and some rain. We can use the rain. And you're, uh, you're listening to Classic Movie Reviews, and you can find us on the internet uh, at www.classicmoviereviews.net. Or if you're in iTunes, just search for Classic Movie Reviews. Or on Facebook, you can search for Classic Movie Reviews. And we've been getting some comments on our iTunes page, which is great. Uh, if you can take a minute and leave a comment, that would be hugely appreciated it's it's really fun to get those and we've had some comments on our facebook page as well which is also a lot of fun thanks to everybody that's uh, uh, made comments and also i should add that listening to these is free of charge yep. which is always good <laughs> and will remain free of charge for the foreseeable future at least for our first 1,000 episodes. Right, well, that, yeah, that's a ways off. Yeah. <laughs> so the studio was 20th Century Fox. So the budget for it was $5.8 million, which in 1968-67 was a huge budget. And the uh, box office was $33.4 million, and it's produced other revenues since then, for sure. The director was Franklin J. Schaffner, which apparently he was not the first choice for director, but Charlton Heston recommended him as someone who could bring the picture together, produce uh, it at, within the budget, and uh, make it really good. And Mr. Schaffner, one of his best movies that he did was Patton, 1970. He did many, many other movies. So, And the, the music was done uh, by Jerry Goldsmith, who had done, a, well, this was the second movie that he'd worked on with, Frank Schaffner, and I, there was a funny quote. I listened to some of the uh, commentary on the Blu-ray. Jerry Goldsmith came to the director and said that he wanted to do an organic, impressionistic score, and Frank Schaffner's comment was, sounds good to me. So he kind of had free reign to do what he wanted, and uh, I thought the music was one of the strongest parts of the movie. I really liked it. Oh, I did too. One of the other things about uh, director Schaffner is that he was selected because I guess one of the first, they had a couple of other candidates and those candidates wanted to make a big futuristic city where all the apes were. And Frank Schaffner said, ah, we'll just do a kind of an organic looking kind of village along a lake. And I think it works. I think that that town or village fits the, the story perfectly. I think a big futuristic city would have looked odd. That would have been totally out of place. I think the city, the way they did the little town, it's not really even a city, is perfect because it ties into some of the themes of the movie, one of which being sort of environmentalism. 
the village, the architecture of the village just reinforced for me the theme of kind of environmentalism. Wow, there were so many themes and uh, stories going on. Just one note on the town around the lake, and this is going to seem a little odd, but it looked like the same town in a lot of ways to the, that was uh, in the movie Popeye with Robin Williams. They had some of the same, <laughs> had the same look in the buildings and all. I, I was struck by that. I don't think they, maybe they did. They may have used the same stuff. Let's use this again. Oh yeah, I remember that movie. I liked that movie. It was, it was it was a weird movie, but I liked it. Yeah, I didn't I didn't pick up on that though. Well, I I kind of look for these things. One other thing on Jerry Goldsmith is uh, he's also going to be the the person that did the music on uh, Logan's Run, and Alien. He did Alien music, which is outstanding. Oh, the Alien music is so good. I, I, that's one of my favorite movies of all time, and the music is is great in that as well. The only other thing I wanted to mention while we're talking about kind of the lead-in, the lead cast, Charlton Heston, he did a series of these science fiction movies, starting with this one and then Beneath the Planet of the Apes in 1969, The Omega Man in 1971, which is really a good movie, and Soylent Green in 1973 about overpopulation and environmental damage. He was very much into the science fiction scene. I, I was thinking that something really special was happening in Hollywood in the late 60s and early 70s in the area of science fiction. Because, you know, if you think about science fiction in the 50s and the early 60s, there's there's a few standouts like for uh, Forbidden Planet. Forbidden Planet is one of the best science fiction movies ever made. And the thing, but you know, you think about a lot of the other science fiction movies, and they were more like B and C level movies. Yeah. Uh, but I think in the sixties, in the late sixties especially, it started to be taken as a real serious art form. You know, leading into things like uh, two thousand one, um, this movie, uh, Andromeda Strain. I think they started using science fiction as a vehicle to talk about some of these bigger themes. And, you know, in this movie, we've got the idea of science and faith, truth, justice, ecology, violence, war. I mean, all these themes are brought up in this movie. And by by kind of putting the apes in the uh, role of the predominant power and then putting men and women in the role of the animal, it really makes you think about our relationship to animals and to the environment and religion. I mean, we could even talk about religion. <laughs> so, oh, it, it it covers the waterfront. It's uh, yeah. I, I wrote a few li uh, down, and you just you mentioned I think all of them, and it really comes across because uh, they've just put everything topsy turvy. I love that they start the movie off, and the whole plot is centered on the idea of relativity, the theory of relativity. You know, well, like some of the first yes. lines in the movie are about how time is moving more slowly for them on their ship because they're going near the speed of light. We're now on full automatic in the hands of the computers. I've tucked my crew in for the long sleep, and I'll be joining them soon. In less than an hour, we'll finish our six months out of Cape Kennedy. Six months in deep space. By our time, that is. According to Dr. Hasline's theory of time in a vehicle traveling nearly the speed of light, the Earth has aged nearly 700 years since we left it. Well, we've aged hardly at all. <laughs> Maybe so. This much is probably true. 
the men who sent us on this journey are long since dead and gone. You who are reading me now are a different breed. I hope a better one. I leave the 20th century with no regrets. But one more thing. If anybody's listening, that is. Nothing scientific. It's purely personal. Seen from out here, everything seems different. Time bends. Space is boundless. It squashes a man's ego. I feel lonely. And that, you know, hundreds of years have passed on the Earth by the time that they are going into their hibernation uh, sleep. And then something something happens along the way, and, and they end up crash-landing on this strange planet. And just before Charlton Heston's character, Taylor is his name, uh, climbs out of the spaceship, he looks at the clock, and like almost 2,000 years have passed. That's such a cool idea. I also like the fact that the special effect in the lake with the rocket ship or spaceship was so well done because in 1967 and 68... That was all made. It wasn't any computer graphics at all. I thought they did an excellent job on that. It looked so real. Yeah, I, I can't say enough good things about the cinematography in this movie, especially the the opening act, which is, I think, from the beginning of the movie to the point where they get where they get captured by the apes, and and then the ending, the third act, which to me is really short. There at the end, just as uh, Taylor is riding off along the beach with uh, with Nova played by Linda Harrison. Uh, the cinematography there is just fantastic. The whole time thing was very clear to me. It was written and presented in a very straightforward and clear way. Sometimes, it may just be me, when I go into these movies where there's a lot of time travel back and forth, it can get really confusing. But this was not. And I could fully understand how they could end up back on Earth. Yeah, to me, it, it's like something happened on the ship, like there was some kind of accident or error, and, and the ship like defaulted to turning around and bringing them yeah. back home. I like that there was a little bit of a jump scare at the beginning when they were all waking up. You all right? Stuart? Stuart? other crew member who's the female astronaut uh stewart is her name and she's all dried out and mummified i know that was great that happens over two thousand years i guess huh yeah well i think she hadn't been dead for that long but yeah well because time was moving for a di at a different pace for them so it right he said it had only been a few years um oh that's right yeah there was a scene when the one of the other astronauts i think it was lucius um Lou Wagner was climbing up one of the tubes to like turn off something or blow the hatch or, or, or I forget what he was doing, but it reminded me of the scene in 2001 when Dave is pulling himself through the ship to disconnect Hal. It had kind of that same feel to it. It does. It does indeed. And I wasn't 2001 made the same year as this came out? 
I think it was 1968. 1968. Yeah, they came out at the same same year. So it it really holds up well and holds together well. Man, did that look like a bad place to live when they started to look around. Yeah, they said there was no life and that... Nothing will grow here. There's just a trace of carbohydrates. All the nitrogen is locked into the nitrates. No dangerous ionization? No. Well... There's no life here. We've got just 72 hours to find it. That's when the groceries run out. Let's go. And Charlton Heston's character says that... Apart from that, you look pretty chipper for a man who's 2,031 years old. I read the clocks. They bear out Hasline's hypothesis. We have been away from Earth for 2,000 years. Give or take a decade. Still can't accept it, Time's wiped out everything you ever knew. It's all dust. Prove it. And he keeps, he's really getting on uh, the case of one of the other astronauts. I think it was Landon. Landon, right. I didn't know why he was doing that other than to kind of show maybe he's not, he's not very likable at the beginning and they kind of wanted to make him tough and maybe inscrutable to start off with. I'm not sure. Later in the movie, he talks about how he didn't have any friends. It was easy for him to make the decision to go on the voyage. And he he seems very um, skeptical and uh, angry. Clue me in on something, will you? Why did you sign on for this trip? You volunteered. Why? Never mind. I'll clue you in. You were the golden boy of the class of 72. When they nominated you for the big one, you couldn't turn it down. Not without losing your all-American image. Climb off, will you? Oh, and the glory, don't forget that. There's a life-size bronze statue of you standing out there somewhere. It's probably turned green by now. Nobody can read the nameplate. But never let it be said that we forget our heroes. Taylor, I'm telling you to climb off my back. Hmm. And there's one last item. Immortality. You wanted to live forever, didn't you? Well, you damn near made it. Except for me and Dodge. You lived longer than anyone ever born. And with our lovely Lieutenant Stewart dead, it looks like you're the last of the line. You got what you wanted, Tiger. How does it taste? Okay, you read me well enough. But why can't I read you? Don't bother. Dodge there, he's not like me at all. But he makes sense. He'd walk naked into a live volcano if he thought he could learn something that no other man knew. But you, you're no seeker. You're negative. And I'm not prepared to die. I'd like to know why not. You thought life on Earth was meaningless. You despise people. So what'd you do? You ran out. No, no, it's not like that, Landon. I'm a seeker, too. But my dreams aren't like yours. I can't help thinking somewhere in the universe there has to be something better than man. Has to be. He makes a note that there's no moon in the sky. What happened? You know, I'm like, what happened to the moon? And I don't remember if they explain that in later movies, but... Well, I don't recall that that was explained. I I don't know. I also was uh, impressed by the Forbidden Zone uh, uh, statues, those those straw. They looked scarecrows. I mean, those were freaky looking to me. They finally get to some like jungle-like forest setting. They get out of the Forbidden Zone, which is a complete desert wasteland. 
and they find this waterfall and they all decide to take a swim and as they're swimming all their clothes get stolen by the humans that are living there and those humans are living like wild animals i thought they did a really good job of making those people seem like they were a herd of of wild animals like a herd of of apes really they look more or less human but i think they're mute We got off at the wrong stop. You're supposed to be the optimist, Landon. Look on the bright side. This is the best they've got around here. In six months, we'll be running this planet. Yes, and it was aided by the apes on horseback and the, uh, the sound effects and the shooting and some kind of a horn instrument. Yeah, it, it was totally reversed. And then we get to the... So, for me, the favorite parts of the movie are the beginning part up to the point where he gets captured and then the ending part where they're at that cave making those discoveries and then he rides off along the shoreline with um, Nova. But the, the middle part to me is, is also good but it's more it's a lot more like philosophical I guess it's there's a lot of dialogue and kind of him being treated badly by the apes and he, he can't talk because his throat's been injured and when he was captured and they're kind of talking about doing experiments on him and they have been doing experiments on people doing brain surgery to try to see if people can talk or you know how intelligent they are because the people are kept in cages just like apes would be kept in cages in a in a science uh, lab. I mean, it's very much that kind of a a setup, except the it's much dirtier and it's more, I guess, like a zoo setting than a than a lab, like a science lab. A, b- a badly run zoo. I, I guess the thing that I want to just mention before we move on is the costumes for the apes for 1968 were outstanding. And uh, the film won two Academy Awards, and I think one of them was for the costume design. I I think John Chambers was responsible mainly for the for the costumes. And in the commentary on the Blu-ray, he was talking about how he'd gotten a call. I think. Oh, Franklin Schaffner. Yeah, Franklin Schaffner had called him and said, "You know, I really want you to come work with me on this movie called Planet of the Apes." And John Chambers was like, "Planet of the Apes? What's that about?" And he says, "I can't." I can't come work on it with you right now. I'm headed to Rome to to see the Pope. <laughs> but when I get back after the New Year, I could I could come and talk to you about what you've got going on. And when he found out what they were doing, he was sort of like overwhelmed. And uh, Frank Schaffner said that you know you're the only one that I think can pull this off. And wow. I mean, there were so many people that were dressed up as apes it was really impressive and the amount of work that that would require is kind of staggering one of my favorite tv shows is is called face off and it's on the sci-fi network oh right we watched that while i was up there visiting yes. yeah and so they go through and talk about uh it's kind of a real a reality show where they're competing against each other and the competition is about doing makeup like this exactly like this kind of makeup with uh, people in suits and masks and whatnot 
uh, having watched that show, I can just imagine just the incredible amount of work that went into making those uh, costumes and making the mouths articulate, you know, when they talked. That was really well done. Uh, now, nowadays, with the new Planet of the Apes film, so much of it is uh, computer-enhanced that it they, they they actually look real. Well, the the new ones, I mean, are the apes are completely computer generated, and and when yeah. you watch the making of that, you know, they're doing motion capture, and and uh, it's a completely different kind of technology. But there there's really something unique about watching this movie and and how they all did it with the practical effects. The uh... Another favorite part of mine, kind of in the middle uh, section of the film, was that uh, commission of elders that came in. And I was trying to pick out James Whitmore, who's one of my favorite actors. And he's so well done in that costume, it I could not recognize him. But that group of apes were like, it was kind of like Laurel and Hardy come to dispense justice. They were just, <laughs> they were. Uh, I don't group. know how much we want to get into talking about uh, the religious aspects of that, but the the fact that I think it was his character, the president of the assembly, or it was Doctor Zayas. I'm not sure. I think it might have been Doctor Zayas, played by Maurice Evans. He was the one who knew the truth mm-hmm. that humans yes. had been there before apes, but because of the sacred writings they weren't ever allowed to talk about that, and it was heresy to ever bring that up. This ad hoc tribunal of the National Academy is now in session. President of the Academy presiding. On my right, Dr. Maximus, Commissioner for Animal Affairs, and on my left, Dr. Zayas, Minister of Science and Chief Defender of the Faith, and appearing for the state, Dr. Honorius, Deputy Minister of Justice. You got instructions to clean up the beast. Now these rags he's wearing give off a stench that's offensive to the dignity of this tribunal. You may proceed, Dr. Honore. By your leave, Mr. President, this tribunal has not yet defined the purpose for this inquiry. You ask for the opportunity to present your case. Surely you must know why you're here. At the very least, this man has the right to know whether there's a charge against him. Objection! This exhibit is indeed a man. Therefore, he has no rights under ape law. Well, Dr. Zira, this is a man, is it not? He is unlike any man you have ever seen, as we hope to prove. Answer the question, Dr. Zira. Is it a man? Uh, uh, sir, uh, perhaps the uh, question is the pointed issue. Uh, um, is he a man? Is he a deviant or uh, a freak of nature? Objection. Sustain now, Dr. Zira. In all fairness, you must admit that the accused is a non-ape and therefore has no rights under ape law. Then why is he called the accused? Your honors must think him guilty of something. It is not being tried, it's being disposed of. It is scientific heresy that is being tried here. Well put, Dr. Zayas. And part of the commission's uh, purpose was to stamp out any uh, ideas that maybe humans had been there before apes. 
It has overtones of the uh, Spanish Inquisition and other things from our past. And he's, he has a line where he says, If you're convicted of heresy, the most you'll get is two years. But if you persist in pointing guns in my direction, you'll hang for high treason. We never meant to be treasonous, sir. But up there, in the face of that cliff, there is a vast cave. And in that cave, a fabulous treasure of fossils and artifacts. I've seen some of your fossils and artifacts. They're worth There's your minister of science. Honor-bound to expand the frontiers of knowledge. Taylor, please! Except that he's also chief defender of the faith. There is no contradiction between faith and science. Meaning that the sci- you know, science based on the sacred writings. And, and toward the end of the movie, Charlton Heston kind of turns that around and says, So... You're both in charge of the. You're the head of science, and you're also the head of the, of the uh, religious type order. It's amazing. Uh, I, I I failed to mention that the uh, original script was written by Rod Serling from Twilight Zone fame. You can feel his effect in the in the movie for sure. I think this the plot, while it's got lots of moving parts, is still clearly understandable to uh, to me anyway. It's truly a franchise film. I, I lost count of how many Planet of the Apes movies have been made since then. Was there a TV series as well? There, yes, there were, there were five movies coming out of this movie, and then a TV series, and then there have been the new movies. I think there have been three of those, right? Two. Yeah, two of them, and I'm not sure. I, I, I'm assuming they're making a third, but I'm not positive. Um, I, remember, I remember growing up watching uh, Planet of the Apes, the TV series, and... I'm pretty sure I'd seen the movies on those like Saturday matinee type uh, shows that they used to have. Oh, right, right. You know, before we had VCRs and it's it's amazing now. I was out at the fun today and I went back in the Rose Garden and there's the big statue of Roddy McDowell as Caesar. Yeah, could you just talk about that for a second? That was one of the things I wanted to bring up. Well, in this movie he is uh Cornelius but he evolves in some later movies. I think he ends up being Caesar. I think somehow, and I've lost track of this, he becomes kind of the uh, leader of the group. At the Motion Picture and Television Fund, there's a beautiful Roddy McDowell garden with three separate gardens where we all met last summer for the wedding. And there's this enormous statue of him as as Caesar. It's a really nice dedication to him. And, it is. Uh, you know, it's... It's it's interesting because it 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 talks about Roddy McDowell, but he's but the statue is of him playing Cornelius slash Caesar, and I thought that was kind of a nice honorarium to him because he's this is probably the role that he's the best known for, I would think. Made a lot of movies as a young young man, Lassie and so forth, but this is this is what I remember him for for sure. I thought it was really sweet at the end when they're gonna let. Taylor and Nova go because they kind of have this big shootout between the humans and the apes at the end and Cornelius and Zira are on the human side and there's a young there's a young ape that's with them who's kind of like the uh he reminded me of of the stereotypical youth from the 60s who just wants to know the truth man and yes. you're just trying to whitewash it all and you're hiding the secrets and you know <laughs> That that's aided when Charlton Heston says to him, Lucius. I still say you're making a mistake. That's the spirit. Keep him flying. What? The flags of discontent. Remember, never trust anybody over thirty. Doctor, I 
like to kiss you goodbye. All right, but you're so damned ugly. <laughs> Yes. He gives her a little peck on the lips, and I thought that oh, was cute. It's very good. Do you want to talk about the ending, which uh, is amazing to me? I'm assuming that everybody that's listening to this has seen the movie, so I hope I'm not... Do we Do we need to do a spoiler alert? Yeah, let's do a spoiler horn. Uh, they've been dropping hints all along that he's actually on Earth, but they don't, actually, they don't say it. And he seems to still be under the delusion that he's on another planet that has somehow had some kind of parallel evolution where apes uh, evolved from men. Uh, but as he's wa riding his horse with Nova down the beach, they sort of pan from uh, right to left and you start to see these silhouetted spikes enter the screen. And then they pan uh, kind of down and you see the head and the, the flame of the statue. And, kind of know that it's the Statue of Liberty and then they switch to a close-up of Taylor. Oh my God. I'm back. I'm home. All the time. We finally really did it. You maniacs! You blew it up! Oh, damn you! God damn you all to hell! And then they have a shot from behind Taylor and it's the Statue of Liberty buried halfway up in sand on the beach with waves crashing on it. I was just going to say that's one of the most iconic views I've ever seen in a movie. I would love to have a poster of that. I, my note was it's perhaps one of the best endings to a movie of all time. They drop little hints along the way, but that final shot is so powerful. And then they just fade to black, and they roll credits, and there's no sound except for the surf. There's no music or anything, it's just the surf of the ocean, the waves crashing, and it's just perfect. I love it. This movie, I think, is as, is as relevant today as it was almost 50 years ago when it came out. I think the grandkids or anybody that would watch it would say, this is really a, a timely kind of a movie for so many reasons. Uh, yeah, Shelby came in and started watching it with me kind of near the end, and... She immediately knew it was Planet of the Apes. Uh, I'm not sure how, I guess because of the people dressed up as apes. Um, and she said, boy, they look a lot different than in the new movie, huh? And I said, yeah, they sure do. And she said, they're kind of cheesy looking. And I said, well, but think about it. This was like 40 years ago, over 40 years ago. You have to, th you have to admit they look pretty, pretty good for uh, all being makeup and, and suits. And she goes, yeah, they do actually. <laughs> so... <laughs> What did you see the movie as for a rating? I think I should have you go first. Yeah, I rated it a 9 out of 10. Um, I loved everything about the first, like I said, the first part and the ending of the movie. And, and I found some of the things in the middle, like I, I felt like maybe they could have sped it up a little bit or there were some scenes that were just kind of repetitive, like they were reinforcing the message a, a few times. And so I thought, 
maybe that was the only thing that would knock it down from a 10 for me. I uh, I agree with that. That's kind of what went into my thinking. I, I was an 8 out of 10. I'm, be, I'm beginning to think I'm becoming a harder raider. I don't know. I, I keep thinking of Double Indemnity and Grapes of Wrath as my benchmark at the high end. And the middle, the middle act, act two, if you will, I think went a little long. And I think the, uh, the panel of elders was a little bit, I don't know, kind of one-sided in the way it, it made them appear like they had already made up their mind. It just didn't seem quite as believable to me as acts one and three. I thought that was totally believable. I, I thought that if you think about like the inquisition and it, and if, uh, a panel had come in to try somebody who was charged with heresy or witchcraft or whatever it happened to be at the time, they would have come in already with their minds made up. And that to me was, was pretty believable. But I just think that the strength of that opening and the ending is so strong that it brings it up to a nine for me. Yeah. Especially the ending. Well, I love the movie. I would recommend it. I, I, I clearly would. It's uh, I'm so glad we picked it because I hadn't seen it for a long time, a long time. But I remember seeing it in 1968 in Boulder. Did you see it in the theater? Yeah. You must have seen it in the theater when yes, it came out. Yes, yeah. I did. I, th I think I saw it in the old Flatirons Theater. And uh, it was really, for the time, cutting edge, leading edge. So next up, we're going to continue our science fiction theme. And, and this next one is called The Andromeda Strain, uh, with written by Michael Crichton who you said makes an appearance in the movie. A non-speaking part. We'll have to watch for it. I'll have to double-check what part of the movie. It, it, I just can't remember. I think it's when they end up going to Wildfire, which is their lab, but I'm not sure. And do you know who directed that mo the movie? I can't read the back of this very well. Robert Wise. Oh, what a wonderful director. He's done everything from The Sound of Music to... West Side Andromeda Story, Strain. Yeah. Star Trek, the motion picture, the day the Earth stood still. Oh my goodness! Okay. He 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 has a full life of films. Wonderful, wonderful director. I'd forgotten it was. I'm him. excited about this. I'm really excited about this, and uh, I have seen this movie, but it's been, oh my gosh, it's got to be over 35 years ago that I watched it. So I'm I I don't really remember the plot too much too well. Well, it's, it'll be number two in our four science fiction marathon. Next up is Andromeda Strain, and then Westworld, which I have really good memories of watching that one as well. I'm yes. Like, I'm looking forward to that. And then Logan's Run. And my, my, my impression of Logan's Run, not having seen it for a while, is that it's borderline B-movie, but at the same time, it's got some great themes, which I think fits with the rest of the movies that we're watching. Oh, I think I think I, I agree with you. I think it's reminiscent of Fantastic Voyage. Yes. Well, I guess we should wrap it up. This is uh, Bob Johnson in Los Angeles, and uh, this is Matt Johnson in Seattle, and we're wishing you a great week of movie watching. Police. I'm in charge of this man. No longer, madam. He is now in the custody of the Ministry of Science. Take your sticking paws off me, you damn dirty ape!